Amen. Amen. Great songs, great messages in those songs, and they go right along with the passage we're going to be looking at tonight. 2 Samuel chapter 24 is where we're going to be tonight. 2 Samuel 24. And again, we've been looking at David as a model of a growing leader and seeing his ups and downs and his triumphs and his troubles. And we come now to the end. And this is, a, to me, a, a great way to end tonight uh, because we see sort of, again, both sides of, of David. Um, if I had to title or put a, a sort of a, a summation over this chapter, it would probably be the peril of prosperity. Because going back to several chapters earlier, we talked about the fact that sometimes prosperity as a Christian is harder to handle than adversity. Many times when David was going through adversity, he seemed to be closer to God and, and staying where he needed to be and inquiring of the Lord and all of that. And it was when things were going well in his life that he began to get his eyes off of the Lord and on to other things. And we see that again here tonight. And so I guess, first of all, I, I just want to say this is in some ways is a challenge, but also is an encouragement. You have David here, the man after God's own heart, who is now at the end of his life. And at the end of his life, he's still making mistakes. He still has his personal struggles. And so again, it's just, it's a, it's a reminder to us, no matter how long we've been a Christian, no matter what our relationship with God is, if we get our eyes off of God, we can all make serious mistakes. And we can never get to a point in our Christian life where we just sort of put it on cruise control, because that just doesn't work. And we see that again here with David at the very end of his life. Notice in verse 1, the Lord's anger again raged against Israel. Now, we're not told exactly in this context why God was so angry with Israel. That's not necessarily the point. The point's going to be, how's this affect David? But I do want to make this point, especially dealing with leadership. You see this pattern in the Old Testament with God's relationship with Israel, where Israel would be in fellowship with God, would worship God, but then obviously, very quickly, they would get out of fellowship with God and they would rebel against God and they would sin and God would have to send some discipline into their lives and then they would be like, oh God, we're sorry, and then they would come back. And so there was this constant like uh, in fellowship, out of fellowship, and there was a lack of consistency there. Now David wasn't nearly as inconsistent with that kind of pattern in his life as the nation of Israel was. But we do see that pattern even in David's life where, you know, he was in fellowship with God, then he was out of fellowship with God. And the, the challenge I want to bring before all of us is just that I think that what God wants to see in our lives as we grow, and especially as we grow as leaders, is simply to be more consistent, to not have, you know, the, the roller coaster Christian life where we can be way up, but then we can be way down. 
or we're really, really close to the Lord for a month, and then we're really, really far away for the next month, you know. But there needs to be more consistency. God wants to build consistency into our lives. And so when Samuel writes here, well, the Lord was angry again with the nation of Israel, it reminds us because, you know, again, they do good for a while, and then they would drift away. Do good for a while, and then drift away. And God would rather see in our lives a slow and steady progression forward or upward than, you know, way up, way back, as we saw with Israel, as we sometimes saw with David. Now then the Bible says, the Lord's anger again raged against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go count Israel and Judah. I don't believe that God incited David to sin because the Bible says God doesn't incite anyone to sin. I think it's a poor wording here of what's really going on. In fact, if you go to a parallel passage, and for those of you that take notes and want to do your own study of this, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, refer to that later on, uh, that says that an adversary actually incited David to go and to begin to count the army. And, and what I think actually was happening was that Satan, because there's also that uh, aspect of it, that Satan was probably uh, inciting an earthly ruler to rattle David's cage a little bit. And because of that, you know, pressure that was coming again from outside, from an earthly enemy, uh, David got upset and his response was, I need to make sure we've got enough people for the battle that is coming. Which is why then it goes on to say, go count Israel, literally go number Israel. So notice verse 2, the king... David told Joab, the general in command of his army, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and muster the army, literally call them to arms, pass in review so that I may know that word meaning become thoroughly acquainted with the size, the number, have an accurate count of the army. Why did David do it? And why are we going to see, was God so displeased with David getting an accurate count of the army? Great leadership principles here. Great just follower of Christ principle. God always wants us to trust in Him. Not in our resources. Not in earthly support systems. God wants us to trust in Him. And by David doing this, what David, in a sense, the leader of Israel, was showing others and, and saying to God was, God, I really don't trust you. I, I want to make sure that we've got a bigger army than our enemy has who's coming against us. I want to make sure we've got enough chariots and enough, you know, armed men and all that. I want to make sure we're, you know, we've got all the stuff. And... You know, very interestingly, David wrote in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will depend and trust in the Lord our God. God wants to teach all of his people to not trust in earthly support systems that we have built around us and earthly resources and material resources. 
God doesn't want us to feel secure because we've counted how much money we've got in the bank. God doesn't want us to feel stable because we count how many friends we've got on Facebook. God doesn't want us to go around counting all these different things in our lives and then making these different things, these earthly things, make us feel secure and stable. God wants us to learn that our security and our stability comes from Him alone. And not that He's with us, but that we're with Him. And as long as we're with Him doing what He's called us to do, just as we said Sunday, then if God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't matter how big the other army is. And David knew this because one time at David's life, David defied all the odds and went out on that field and slew Goliath because he wasn't trusting in his own armor. He wasn't trusting in himself. He was trusting in the Lord. And he would say, the battle is the Lord's. But now at this point in his life, somebody has, has rattled his cage and, and, and somebody has, has sort of stirred some things up maybe on, on a front. And, and David feels threatened and feels a little insecure. And instead of going to God... And, and getting his stability and security from God, he asked Joab, let's go through all the land of Israel and let's see how many people we got. That'll make me feel better. So notice verse 3. Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God make the army a hundred times larger right before the eyes of my Lord the king. But why does my master the king want to do this? By the way, the word reply means to speak up, to speak out. And sometimes leaders have to do that. Even with other leaders. Yeah, David was the king. But Joab was being a good leader. He was even saying to the king, Are you sure? Are you sure this is what we should be doing? In fact, the word want in verse 3 means to desire, to delight in, to take pleasure in. In other words, Joab is, is sensing from David that this isn't something David even necessarily feels forced into. This is something David wants to do even for himself. So then there's the implication in Scripture that not only is David numbering the army of Israel to maybe make himself feel more secure and stable because of a threat that might be coming, but it's also implied that it's almost like it's going to make him feel good about him. Like, look at how big an army I've got type of thing. And then verse 4 says, The king's edict stood despite the objections of Joab and the leaders of the army. In other words, another thing we see here is that David was the only one that felt that this was a good idea. Nobody else. And we'll get to that in a moment. That, that's a problem, obviously. So Joab and the leaders of the army left the king's presence in order to muster the Israelite army. I'm not going to read verses 5, 6, and 7. I, I want to go then to verse 8. Because basically that's just sharing with us everywhere in Israel that they went. But verse 8 then basically summarizes, they went through all the land and after nine months and 20 days, that's how long it took them, nine, almost a year, they came back to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of warriors to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 sword-wielding warriors, and in Judah, there were 500,000, over a million. 
And as soon as David got the report, notice his response or his reaction. Verse 10, David felt guilty after he had numbered the army. Literally in the Hebrew, it means to be stricken or smitten. In other words, it's, it's words that's used in the Old Testament to describe conviction. David became convicted about what he did. Conviction isn't pleasant when it comes. But you know, as a Christian, it's something that we should thank God for. It really is a blessing from God. That we have a God and we have a relationship with God that when we do something that is not in His will and against His Word, He convicts us. You know, so the Christian, in a sense, has a double in a sense, system that, that helps us keep in line. We have our own human conscience, which every human being has, but beyond that, because our conscience isn't always reliable, or we can certainly sear our conscience, as the Bible says, we also have the Holy Spirit living within us who will bring about conviction. And that's exactly what happened to David. David felt convicted. I think it's important for all of us to make sure that as we move through our life with God, that we never lose that sensitivity to God, to His Spirit, to to the conviction of the Spirit. That is just so important that we not become hard-hearted, And so set and stubborn in our ways that when God's Spirit is sort of pressing upon us, that we just continue to go our way without yielding and surrendering to the Spirit. And we're going to talk about that. That's why these songs tonight were just so in line with this passage of Scripture. And so David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Once again, David took responsibility. He said, I missed the mark. I wandered off the path. I should have never done what I did. Now, O Lord, he says, please remove, literally carry away, pass over the guilt, the consequence, the punishment of your servant. For I have acted very foolishly. In the Hebrew, literally David says, I've been stupid. I can relate. We probably all can relate. We've probably all done things and made decisions and choices that we look back and go, man, that was stupid. But beyond this, one of the sort of interesting things and the things that we can apply to our life that goes back up to Joab and all the leaders telling David, are you sure, David? Because none of the rest of us think this is a good idea. Implied in the Hebrew language of these words acted very foolishly, is not willing to listen. In other words, I think God wants to teach us, leaders always listen. They're always open to listening to the perspective and what others have to say. In fact, that is exactly what the Hebrew word full means in the book of Proverbs. 
you know, some people just on the surface looking at that word in English are like, well, fool must mean somebody who doesn't have a lot of smarts or, you know, whatever. No, not at all. A fool biblically could be the most intelligent person in the world. But if they're not willing to listen, if they're not teachable, if they're not willing to yield at times to others, then according to the Bible, that's foolish behavior. And David basically says, I was foolish. In a sense, I should have listened to your spirit because the implication here is the spirit wasn't inciting David to count the army, obviously. And beyond that, David should have listened to Joab and all the leaders of the army because none of them thought that this was a good idea. So again, important leadership principles here. But then notice what happens as we move on. Verse 11, when David got up the next morning, the Lord had already spoken to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Very interestingly, the word seer means to provide vision or perspective. The point I want to make there is all of us need people in our lives that help provide perspective and vision. All of us. No matter who we are as leaders. And you'll notice here, this was David's sort of personal seer. No matter who we are as leaders, David the king of Israel... We all need to allow people into our lives that help provide a different perspective or just give us perspective and vision. Because again, as human beings, the iceberg principle, we only see our little slice, our little perspective. And in order to be a good leader, we do need to be open to see other people's perspective on things. And this was Gad's sort of role in David's life. And so God tells Gad, go tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am offering you three forms of judgment. Pick one of them and I will carry it out against you. Wow. That doesn't happen very often in the Bible. Where God's going to get ready to judge somebody and says, hey, three choices. Which one do you want? You know? I don't know about you, but God's never come to me and say, Jeff, I got a couple ideas of how I'm going to discipline you. Why don't you pick one? You know, but for whatever reason, in this case, he did. But I'm glad he did, because again, we're learning something about David and about David's relationship with God and about God because of it. So notice verse 13, Gad went to David and told him, here's your choices. Seven years of famine come upon your land. Or shall you flee for three months from your enemy with him in hot pursuit? Or shall there be three days of plague in your land? You decide what I should tell the one who sent me. In other words, you decide I'll go back to God and say, God, here's what he chose. Now, if you didn't know the story and knew which one David chose, which one of them would you have chosen? Would you have chosen the same one that David did? And David has a reason why he chose the one that he chose. And I think it gives us, again, great insight into his relationship with God. And again, probably why he was a man after God's own heart. Notice what David said to Gad. First of all, he says, I'm very upset. (laughs) 
Sorry, that's not funny, but, you know. By the way, the word upset here literally means to be in distress, to be pressed hard upon, to, to, to be in straits. It, it's that, it's feeling like, you know, things are closing in around you. And David certainly felt that way. But again, there are times where we feel that way and it's not our fault. There's other times where we feel that way and it, it's, our, it's our fault that we're there. And this was David. It, it was no one else's fault that David, in a sense, felt the way he did because he brought this all on. But notice what he says. I prefer that we be attacked by the Lord... For His mercy is great. I do not want to be attacked by men. In other words, David says, I trust God way more than I trust people. And if I'm going to fall into the hands of someone, because that's literally in the Hebrew what the words in my translation, I prefer that we be attacked, literally means to fall into the hand of another. David is saying, I know my God. I know because of the relationship and the fellowship I have had with God over the years. And in spite of the fact that God is angry and He's going to discipline me for what I have done, I would still rather fall into the hands of God than fall into the hands of another man. And so that's why I'm going to choose the one that I choose. By the way, notice that David also says, because God's mercy is great. Literally, his compassion for me, his affection is great. And even though God is going to judge, he also balances out his judgment, if you will, with mercy, with compassion. Men don't normally have that capability. And so that's why David is saying, I'll choose to fall into God's hands any day over another human being. So that's why I'm going to pick what I do. And so what he chose, obviously, was the plague. So verse 15 says, So the Lord sent a plague through Israel from the morning until the completion of the appointed time. Seventy thousand men died from Dan to Beersheba. Wow. First of all, a couple things. The word plague here in the Hebrew means pestilence, but also, very interestingly, it means to speak. And one of the things that I think God is saying here is that through judgment and through consequences and through discipline and through pain, sometimes that's the only way I can get people's attention. Sometimes that's the only way they will stop and listen to me. I thought that was very interesting. Secondly is this. Remember that up in verse 1, when the Bible says that God was angry again with the whole nation of Israel, that yes, I believe that part of all these people dying was the result of David's poor choice, which reminds us, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks with David, that when we sin, we don't sin in a vacuum. And when we make bad choices, those bad choices affect other people, even innocent people. There's no way that innocent people can always escape the consequences of other people's sin and bad choices. And so David had that to deal with. But then also don't forget that in a sense, God was also using this pestilence, this plague, to judge the whole nation of Israel 
because they had rebelled against him as a nation as well, which is why we started out this chapter like we did up in verse 1. So it was all sort of tied together. When the angel extended his hand to destroy Jerusalem, verse 16, the Lord relented, literally refrained or withdrew from his judgment. He told the angel who was killing the people, that's enough. Stop now. Now the Lord's angel was near the threshing floor of Anua, the Jebusite. We're going to come back to that. In fact, we're going to end with that tonight. I want to talk for a few minutes about the threshing floor. Very important. When he saw, David, I believe, saw the angel who was destroying the people, somehow God gave David the ability or a vision to see, actually to see the angel that was doing this. David said to the Lord, look, it is I who have sinned and done this evil thing. As for these sheep, what have they done? Attack me and my family. So David feels bad, obviously, about what's all going on and basically says, well, don't, don't, you know, attack all these innocent people. This was on me. Now, again, I don't think God was doing all of this just because of David, because again, refer back to verse one, God was already angry with the entire nation of Israel because of their idolatry and rebellion again. So I think it was, it was part of one thing, part of another. If you take the whole biblical story of what's going on here into context at the same time. So Gad went to David, verse 18, that day and told him, Go up and build an altar for the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Literally, set up, raise up a place of sacrifice. That's what an altar is. A place of sacrifice on the threshing floor. And, and David went up as God instructed him to do because again, notice the Bible says this wasn't just God's idea. Gad was just informing David what the Lord wanted David to do. This was according to the Lord's instructions. So verse 20, when Aruna looked out and saw the king and his servants approaching him, he went out and bowed to the king with his face to the ground. Aruna then said, why is my Lord, the king come to his servant? David replied, to buy from you the threshing floor so I can build an altar for the Lord so that the plague may be removed from the people. Aruna told David, my Lord, the king may take whatever he wishes and offer it. Look, here are oxen for burnt offerings, threshing sledges and harnesses for the wood. Aruna was being very generous. Even though the king said, I want to buy this. Aruna said, hey, it's yours. You want it, you take it. Very generous. But I, the servant of my Lord, verse 23, the king, give it all to the king. Aruna also told the king, may the Lord your God show you favor. Literally, may this be pleasing, may this be acceptable to God. But notice David's response. One of the famous, I guess, thoughts of David in the word of God. The king said to Aruna, no, I insist on buying it. Literally in the Hebrew, I insist on paying a price. For I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt sacrifices that cost me nothing. David wasn't trying to make up for what he had done. There was no way he could do that. What David was doing, and this is so important, 
is once again now, even though he made that bad mistake by numbering the army and he was out of fellowship with God at that point, by the end of the chapter and by the end here, David is back in fellowship with the Lord and he's being a good leader and a good example because what he is setting before the people is this principle. Commitment to God costs something. And I I always hope that this happens to all of us where, you know, what I teach or anybody teaches us or what we read ourselves or study ourselves sort of sits there and we we can meditate on it and we can let it bounce around in our heads and in our hearts. But I really would like to encourage all of us tonight to let what David said in verse 24 really do that. Maybe even for a whole week or two. For this reason. I think we all need to come to terms with this in our own lives. Because we definitely live in a culture, world culture, but especially in America today, in our churches, amongst Christians, where Christians in America today, many, 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 want the blessing of God and they want all the advantages of being a Christian and all of that, but they don't want to pay any price for it. They they don't want any commitment. They don't want any cost. They don't want to pay any price. In other words, I'll come to church when it's convenient. I'll serve when it's convenient for me. I, I, I want... God to fit into my schedule and my boxes. I don't want a God who somehow is going to inconvenient me and make me have to pay a price. And and it's going to cost me something. Yeah. It is. If we're going to truly live for Christ, we cannot truly live for Christ without paying a price. We cannot try to live the Christian life and somehow keep from it costing us anything. Commitment to Christ always costs. That's why as Jesus' earthly ministry went on and on and on up until the time he was arrested, he actually kept losing people following him. Unlike people today who you know, keep gaining people to follow them and the crowd keeps getting bigger and bigger. Do you realize if you would read the Gospels that Jesus actually started out with this huge throng of people because he was healing people and all this. By the time he got to the end, almost everybody. Because what he was demanding from them was something they were not willing to pay when Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you got to be willing to take up your cross daily and follow me. Most people were like, eh, it costs too much. Too much commitment. Too much of a price to have to pay. I'm not willing to do it. And that's why when we look around on the landscape of Christianity today and churches and Christians today, we're, we all have to wrestle with this. Because there's not a one of us 
that doesn't struggle with paying the price that it takes to be committed to Jesus Christ. And so I love that challenge that David gives us here when he's back in fellowship with God. I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt sacrifices that cost me nothing. Wow. I just, I think that's so profound. Like I said, I think that just needs to sit with us for a while. And, and we need to think about that. And, and maybe even ask ourselves, because I've certainly done this in the last couple weeks as I've been preparing for this. What parts of my Christian life really are costing me? What price am I paying? And really looking at my walk with Christ and evaluating that. But then, David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 pieces of silver. Verse 25, And David built an altar for the Lord there and offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings. And the Lord accepted prayers for the land and the plague was removed from Israel. And the cool thing as far as David was concerned is he started out the chapter out of fellowship with God. He ended the chapter back in fellowship with God. He was in a good place with God again. But in closing tonight, I want to talk about the threshing floor. First of all, I want to share with you, if you don't know this, the cool significance of where this threshing floor was located. This threshing floor that is described here in 2 Samuel 24 was exactly the same place where Abraham offered Isaac. It is the same place where Solomon, a few years later, was going to build the temple in Jerusalem. So it's a very historically significant place. But there's something else here that we learn, and it's also confirmed to us in many other Old Testament passages. And that is that the threshing floors, many times God commanded His people to also make the threshing floors a place of worship to Him. And I think it's because of what the threshing floor symbolized. I think we can learn a lot about worship and what God wants to see in His people from just taking a few moments and talking about what actually is a threshing floor and what happened there. Well, the threshing floor was pretty simple. First of all, most of the time threshing floors, when you found them in Israel were located on very high places. Reason being, when they wanted to separate the wheat from the chaff, and they did it by the process of winnowing, they needed places where the wind was continually blowing. So when they did winnow, obviously the wheat would fall and the chaff would be blown away. So most of the time, the threshing floors were on high places. That's why throughout the Old Testament many times you'll see that idols were set at high places and there was all these you know, references in the Old Testament to the high places because many times the high places on the mountains were not only where the threshing floors were, they were where the places of worship were, both for idols and for the true God. But there were things that went on in the threshing floor that were significant. It's where the stalks of wheat were brought to be broken. The first part of the process in the threshing floor was they would gather the stalks of wheat, put them on this floor, 
that was really solid. And then they would run sleds, literally, over them to break up the wheat in order then that they could winnow it. So the first pro- uh, the process of getting the wheat separated from the chaff was literally breaking the stalks. And I think that brokenness is a key element in our life with God and our worship of God, which is pictured in the way the stalks of wheat are broken even before the wheat is separated from the chaff. Brokenness before God is essential to usefulness by God. Let me talk for a moment about brokenness. Some people have a misconception. Some people think that when they hear the word brokenness, it almost means like, does that mean God wants me to go around all gloomy and sad all the time? No. Biblical brokenness, if you will, is just yieldedness. Surrender. I surrender all. Teachableness. Brokenness, though, I like to define is agreeing with God about where I really am spiritually. Not what other people think I am, but what God knows me to be. And agreeing with Him. This is where I am, God. Not trying to fake it or put on a front or pretend or whatever. It's just, yeah, you're right. That's where I'm at. That's what I need to work on. I, that, that area, you know, in other words, it's, it's just agreeing with God. This is where I'm at. This is who I am. That to me is the essence of brokenness. And let me share with you from the Bible, I think a great illustration of why brokenness before God is so essential to usefulness. Look at the disciples. Many people think that the reason the disciples were such dynamic witnesses in the book of Acts was because they saw the risen Jesus. I'll give you that. But I don't think that's the only reason they were dynamic witnesses. I think they became dynamic witnesses and they became useful in the potter's hands because they were broken in the Gospels. Remember, these were guys that were going around earlier when they were following Jesus, arguing about which one of them's the greatest. This was the guy, Peter, the leader of the disciples, when Jesus even told him, Peter, you will deny me three times. Peter says, I'll never deny you. Peter was not broken. He was not humble. He was not really surrendered. He was not yielded. He was not looking at himself the way God was looking at him. He was not agreeing with God with where he really was. He thought more of where he was than where he really was. And it took his denials to really break him and show him through the pain of those denials. I'm not quite as, I'm not quite as far along as I thought I was. I got still a lot to learn and I got a lot of growing to do. And yet, it was soon after that that then Jesus appeared to Peter with the other disciples by the sea and said, Peter, feed my sheep. You've been broken now. Yes, you've seen me, the risen Christ, but you've been broken. You no longer have that pride and you no longer have that 
I got this all taken care of and, and I, I'm relying on myself and all that. No, you've been broken. And because you've been broken, you will now be much more useful to me. I don't, and I know this is a bold statement, but I truly believe it with all my heart and I've seen it in my own life. God uses me in greater ways when I'm broken before Him. When I'm not broken is when it's like I'm stubborn clay in the potter's hands and I limit my usefulness with God. So that's, i got to wrap this up. I get so excited about the threshing floor. After the stalks then are broken, obviously then they take the rakes, if you will, the forks, and they literally lift up the stalks and throw them so that in that windy environment where the threshing floor just has openness all around it, the chaff can be blown away by the wind and the good wheat can fall to the ground. So there's that idea of separation. And that's also what worship and getting close to God is all about. That's why the Bible talks about holiness being the fact where we are more and more separated unto God and more and more set apart from the world. And where God, in worshiping Him and coming into His presence, is going to take us through a process of, in a sense, separation. I guess what I'm trying to say, if I'm not making any sense, is that through worship, God will separate us from things. Because there will be some things in our life that's keeping us from being all that we could be and, and being used by God to the degree that He wants to use us. And so it's through, in a sense, coming to our threshing floor and yielding and surrendering and being broken that God can begin to purge and prune and separate us from everything that's keeping us back that chaff in our lives that he wants to get rid of. And so really the threshing floor was a great picture of communion with God. And what went on there is a great picture of worship, which is why I believe God instructed Gad to tell David, I don't want this place just to be a threshing floor where the wheat gets separated from the chaff. I want David to build an altar there. That's where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, or at least was willing to do it. And that's where Solomon's going to build the temple one day, is right on this same spot. Because I want my people to know these principles that come from the threshing floor. So really cool stuff here as we end 2 Samuel chapter 24 and Look at the end of David's life. Again, David wasn't the one that actually was going to build the temple, even though that was his idea we saw several weeks ago. But Solomon, his son, was going to build that temple right on this same spot. And so, obviously, you can go to Israel today, and you can go to that same spot and see where that threshing floor at one time was, which now has become something much different. 
I hope our series in 2 Samuel has been encouraging to you and challenging to you as much as it has to me. Look forward to some new series coming up. And thank you guys so much for being here tonight. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, we, we're humbled by your word. Lord, there's so much in your word that, Lord, we could study it and study it and study it and never get to the end of all that's contained there. But, Lord, there's some things that are just so straightforward and so clear. And, and certainly tonight, Lord, we saw a couple major things. One, you want us to trust you. You don't want us to find our security and our stability in numbering things and counting things and looking at the material, physical, earthly support systems that we've gathered around ourselves. You want us to simply look to you. You're all that we need. And so, Lord, help us to continue as as people in this world continue to try to find their security and stability and so many other things and other people and whatever that, Lord... We are continually looking to you for that. And then, Lord, we're challenged by the words of David when he said, I will not offer to the Lord any sacrifices that cost me nothing. He was willing to pay a price for his commitment to you. And Lord, in a a day and an age where the church in general seems to want to try to make things to where no one has to make any kind of commitment and no one has to pay a price and no one has to count any kind of cost. And yet, Lord, we see very clearly that that's not biblical commitment. Lord, you ask us to give you our all, our everything, to truly take up our cross die to self and follow you. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that this would be a a challenge for all of us and something that we just need to ponder and meditate upon in the days ahead. And then, Lord, remind us these principles of worship. That worship is, in communing with you, also has to be about brokenness. and It has to be about separating the wheat from the chaff in our own lives. And Lord, help us to be yielded and surrendered to you more and more every day to allow you to separate the wheat from the chaff in our lives, to make us more useful, more productive in your hands. God, go with us. Give us a great rest of the week and bring everyone together again on Sunday, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here.